This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. I'm Nick Ravellis, the Director of Community Engagement for San Diego Opera. Welcome to Opera Talk Live. Good to have you here. Um, thank you. We've... Um, We've just announced the Darlene Shiley Detour series at San Diego Opera. Now, this is a series that will explore chamber opera, unusual works, um, works in unusual venues, in smaller theaters. I mean, we're really going to try and stretch the definition of opera, something that I hope that I'll be able to explore with my two guests tonight. Um, and we also hope to engage with different communities in San Diego through this detour series. Um, I'm proud to say that our first effort in that direction is Soldier Songs by David T. Little. Um, And it's an opera, of course, that speaks to a significant portion of our community, uh, that being the veterans community. So without further ado, I want to introduce my guests tonight. First of all, our composer, a composer of numerous works in various uh, forms and a diverse collection of ensembles, but uh, for our interest particularly, a composer of opera. And I see four of them on his uh, list of works, Sport or the Finch Opera, I'll ask him about that, uh, Soldier Songs, Dog Days, and his latest work for Fort Worth Opera, JFK. Let's welcome David T. Little. And also joining us tonight is the conductor of Soldier Songs. He's an internationally renowned percussionist and conductor, conductor of the La Jolla Symphony, tireless advocate for new music, and distinguished professor of music at UCSD, and a first-time conductor for San Diego Opera, Stephen Schick. Happy to be here. Thank you. So both of you are new to us. Stephen, you're new to us as a conductor. Uh, David, you're new to us as a composer. So we want to get to know you both just a little bit. So I'm going to ask one question, but I, I hope that both of you will, will jump in. Um, I find it interesting that both of you come from drumming. You're both percussionists. Yeah. How did that start for you? I mean, I, you know, classic story here, piano lessons, right? But no. Definitely not piano lessons. I'm still a terrible pianist. Um, for me, it was Fife and Drum Corps, actually. I saw Fife and Drum Corps in a parade, and I was very interested in history. They were dressed up like the Continental Marine Corps, and I oh. said, that's really great. I want to be part of that. And so I joined maybe three weeks later. My father was also a drummer, so there was a drum set sort of packed up in the house that I would oh. some t- somehow, you know, sometimes pull out and, and, and hit. Um, <laughs> and, of course, drum sets made of pots and pans. So it was always a... a a presence of, of percussive things, but the drum corps was really my my really first uh, music lesson. That's interesting. How about you, Steve? Well, when I was in the first grade at Wilson Elementary School in Mason City, Iowa, the band director sent a sheet of instruments home to the parents. And at the top of the, uh, that sheet were all of the instruments that I actually really wanted to play. I remember thinking that French horn, especially in the context of the frozen wasteland of northern Iowa, seemed pretty exotic. That was what my interest was. <laughs> but no, <laughs> towards the bottom, actually, not towards the bottom, at the very bottom <laughs> of the list were drums. It didn't say percussion. It just said drums with an asterisk 
that the parents did not actually have to buy a drum, just the sticks. <laughs> my mother was a frugal farm wife, and she looked at my four younger brothers and sisters and thought the drums will be for Steve. But what she didn't know is that now in my studio at UC San Diego, I have uh, nearly 2,000 instruments. And so she oh. signed me up not for no instruments, but for lots of <laughs> Did you have mentors um, in, in your early days of studying music, studying drumming? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I had a primary teacher. His name was Pete Hubert, who was, uh, it was, had a been, been a member of the Old Guard, Fife and Drum Corps, actually, in the Army. And, um, yeah, I learned from him pretty much exclusively for the first 10 years I was, I was drumming. And really, it was all taught uh, by rote. I didn't really read until I got to college. I could read a little bit, but not really with any fluency. How did you pass the entrance exam into, the, into college? I had a, because I learned everything by rote, I had a very good memory. So I actually memorized all of my excerpts. <laughs> and I remember at the interview, mm-hmm. They said, oh, we're so impressed you memorized everything. I said, yes. Isn't that exceptional? Um, And the fact is, if they had asked me to do any sight reading, I would have had no clue. So just got lucky, I guess. Yeah. And and Steve, for you, a mentor? I had um, two fantastic teachers, Thomas L. Davis at the University of Iowa, who uh, passed away a few years ago, and Bernhard Wolf in in Freiburg in Germany. And my debt to them will never be repaid. I chip away at it from time to time. Mm. And then there are, of course, I think, David, it's probably the same for you. There are are these mentors that we never met. Mm. You know, Max Roach. Mm. uh, Never met Max Roach. I did, met, I did meet Ed Thigpen, which was a very good day. Uh, you know, and now so you'll, there t- are, you'll have to tell me Ed, and us who, who, who Ed, he was. You know, Ed Thigpen was one of the sweetest, yeah. most beautiful drum set players you can imagine. Mm. And he walked through a rehearsal of one of the loudest, angriest pieces I've ever played. And he sat down and smiled beatifically. And I thought, I must be doing something right. I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, and so, of course, there are people we yeah. listened to and yeah, people yeah. we cared for whom we never met. Yeah, Joe Morello was a big influence on me mm. growing up, and I had the pleasure, since he lived in New Jersey where I grew up, I had mm. a single lesson with him before he passed away. So that was sort of a great moment oh, just wow. to, uh, to get to fabulous. sit in the room and talk about ride cymbals with him. You know? Well, what brought you to composition from drumming to, to creating music? Well, I played in a lot of rock bands, and I always I found that I wanted to be involved in the songwriting, which is some sort of a punchline to a joke about drummers writing the songs in the band, you know. <laughs> but it was I was very I, I really worked hard at trying to um, create these these structures uh, to to these original songs that we were doing, um, and then film scoring really uh, illuminated that it could be a, a job. Mm. You know, I remember when I, I think it was probably 15, I saw The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm. And I realized that this was the same person who had written Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice and all these movies that I had grown up with. Right. And I said, oh my God, this is this person's job. I want that job. <laughs> that sounds really great. And at this point, I still couldn't read music very well, if mm. at all, and had no idea what it meant to be a composer. And the internet was brand new, so I was you know, waiting for the, the AOL dial-up to like, look for the one website about composing that I could find. <laughs> so it was an interesting early journey. And then when I got into college, I entered as a music education major, quickly changed to performance, percussion performance, um, but really was a sort of de facto composition major. I was taking mm. hour-long lessons from my sophomore year on, did two recitals. You know, I was very mm-hmm. serious about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Steve, you stuck with percussion, but then you branched out into conducting at one point. I still play a lot of percussion. Yeah, uh, yeah. And conducting, you know, 
I always loved, I guess, what people call classical music, you know, music of the 18th and 19th centuries of the common practice. And in fact, my mother was a very good amateur pianist. There were no musicians otherwise in the family for as far as you could see. But I'm the eldest, and so I was the most likely to be up late. And I could hear her after the farm chores were done after everybody else was put together. And I mean, literally on the, on the northern plains in the middle of the winter with wind whistling by the windows. Mm-hmm. And she was downstairs playing Chopin. So for me, Chopin and the sound of winter wind are inextricable mm-hmm. from one another. And they, they make, it, it is such a beautiful and melancholy uh, mixture. And then my commitment, as you mentioned already, is to contemporary music, which is, as percussionists, one of the one of the ways in which we can contribute. Uh, but I never turned my back on the music that I loved when I was a kid and when I had the chance through a set of accidents, which I won't take your time to describe, but I basically accidentally started conducting. I thought I was going to conduct exactly one concert to replace someone at, a last, at the last minute, and I had my cho- choice of all of these great pieces. I thought, well, you know, I'll be the George Plimpton of conductors. I'll conduct <laughs> just one thing. And uh, it was such an extraordinary feeling, the sound from the orchestra from that position but also the sense of that many people engaged in the same project. Mm. And where else in life really can you find a collective effort to make a single thing by that many people? I was just blown away by, essentially, by the community of it. And Mm. then I stuck with it and and played catch-up, shall we say. Um, David, I I find it fascinating that during your doctoral studies at Princeton, Mm -hmm. Princeton, is that correct? Yeah. Um, you explored the intersection between politics and music, and in fact, that was your dissertation. Yes. yes. What were you after? <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, actually, I was, int- I was really um, exploring that very selfishly because I, um, from many years before that, had, had become obsessed with this idea and this question of, you know, can these things combine effectively? If so, how? What are the good examples? What are the bad examples? Um, and I realized as I initially explored it, this was when I was at uh, University of Michigan as a graduate student at doing my master's degree, and even at the end of my time in college at, at uh, Susquehanna, I, was just re- I just felt that, like an area I needed to know about. I mm. needed to understand it. And I realized very quickly that really the only way I was going to ever do that was to spend seven years writing a dissertation on it <laughs> because it's huge. It's a huge topic. But what was the trigger do you remember? I don't know if I... I don't know. Um, it, there's a Michael Doherty piece called Sing Sing J. Edgar Hoover that he wrote for Kronos. It may have been that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was something I was always interested in. I was always interested in politics. I was always interested in history and government, um, conflict, power structures, all of these things. And then when music became uh, my primary focus, those other things didn't really go away. Mm. And so I started to explore how they could be combined in such a way that the, you know, the danger is that you very quickly go into the realm of propaganda. So right. how can you right. explore these areas and write music with, a political, with political content without making it propaganda? Mm. Uh, and that really was a big, big question in the, in the thesis work. Well, now, to address soldier songs specifically, mm-hmm. um, I... I I don't know whether it's you that's on record or something that I read somewhere, so I may be totally off, Um, that that, that's not a political piece. Or or perhaps I should say it doesn't take a side as far as 
war is concerned, yeah. the rightness or the wrongness right. of it or anything like that, that, that it focuses on uh, the soldier and, and what the soldier is and what yeah, the soldier experience. experiences. Yeah. Is that correct? When I was at the University of Michigan, I was studying with William Bolcom, ah. and I had a great sort of pivotal lesson with him where I was writing this very political piece, and, and my understanding of what that meant at that time in 2002, and we had a long conversation about it, and at the end, he just said, you know, I don't really need a piece of music to tell me that war is bad or that war is difficult. I get this. Mm. This is just, I understand this as a human being. Um, and so that really inspired me to say, okay, well, if that is true, then what? How do you then explore this um, without making those sorts of statements, you know, which uh, in some levels are so obvious that they don't need to be said. Right, you know? right. Um, and so Soldier Songs was in part um, the result of questions. You know, one, this question, how do you write a piece like this? Um, and also personal questions that, that came up out of my life as I had friends from high school who were going to Iraq. Mm. Um, and looking at our parallel lives, this you know one uh, uh, person in the in the piece, Justin Bennett, you know I had grown up with him. Our parents taught together at the same high school, you know, and then I ended up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and he ended up in Iraq. So what is that about? You yeah. know, having had so many of the same uh, circumstances throughout our lives, mm. and uh, so I really started. I wanted to understand how to answer that question, and so I started calling people like Justin, calling people in my family and saying, hey, would you get together and, and let me interview you for this, this project I'm doing? And at the time, I don't think I realized how, I didn't realize what the piece was actually about. I just knew the area I wanted it to explore. Right. And this, this idea of the inability to speak about one's experiences really came out of the interviews mm. because that was something that everybody talked about. Yeah. So, uh, Steve, as the conductor of the piece, and you're preparing it yes. now, um, what is your take on it from that aspect, from the political aspect? Um, what do you have to say about it? Well, I think there's so many ways to unpack this word political, and, and David has already started so effectively, yeah. but, but I mean, one way is to say, is it polemic or is it political? Mm -hmm. right. Is it timely or is it political? And there, there are all these different kinds of shades. And so it seems to me that what David's piece does is offer a mirror rather than a message. It's political, but I would write that with a small p. Mm. It, 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 it stops short. In fact, I don't think it ever even attempts to create a polemic situation in mm. which there is a pass-fail test given to the listener to agree or disagree with a point of view. That's, right. that's the kind of political music which I think drives almost all of us crazy. But I think that's why it's powerful. It's totally powerful. You know, because the audience does have to sort of confront this experience of the soldier of the warrior yeah. um, so I and make up their own mind. Yeah. If we could replace the word political with the, the word proximate. Mm. So in other words, it brings an audience member close to the topic by forcing him or her to deal with the experience of a warrior through the warrior's own words. Mm. Not by a kind of voyeuristic look at something that happened way over there that is so far from us that, that we can't imagine it, but by actually listening to those words. Then accompanied by a small ensemble close-miked, so that in fact the music is as proximate as the metaphoric images are, one finds that this thing is a lot closer to us than we'd like to believe. Mm -hmm. I mean, just one quick little comment more, and that is that I'm astonished now. We're getting ready, you know, we're starting our quarter at UC San Diego. We will have 
young freshmen, young men and women entering our institution who were toddlers on 9-11. And for them, they have never known a war, a world that wasn't at war. So they have never known a world that was at peace. Those words fail to have meaning anymore. And so what I think David's piece does so beautifully is to force us to confront, to examine, by holding this mirror up to us, a topic which we either wish not to see or don't have the tools actually to address. And I think this is what the great gift of his music is. Well, and isn't it one of the ways that art can engage us um, in, in a difficult topic such as, such as this? I always think that the, the most, but also the least we can expect from a piece of music is to change our lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because we're talking, we, we, we've talked a little bit about the soldiers that you interviewed. Mm-hmm. I'd like us to hear just um, a minute of the beginning of the piece, the prelude, actually. And these, I take it, are actual um, tapes of the interviews yep. um, that you did initially in terms That's of right. getting, getting to the piece. Let's listen to this. I never talk about this with anybody. I never talk about this with anybody. And most veterans will talk about it unless it's with another veteran. Because people really don't know how they're feeling unless it's somebody that's been there. War is killing. And that's a scary proposition. A grunt was basically the guy who did all the dirty work. Second Army Headquarters keeping a record of all the casualties. And that's that's about the first time that it hit me when you see all the casualties coming through the dead, the wounded, and all that. You had to keep a record of it. 24 hours ago, you were in New Jersey, and now here you are in a place you've never been before. But You're soldiers first, and that sort of is supposed to wipe out being a human. You want to know the real story? You want to know what... what... Um, those are the, the first words that we hear, of course, in the opera, and some of them are the most profound. I never talk about this with anybody. Your soldiers first, and that's supposed to wipe out the human. That's a profound statement. 24 hours ago, you were in Jersey. Mm -hmm. Um, So this was your initial entrance into the creation of the piece, and you decided to make it the entrance for all of us uh, into the piece. Well, and I think, in a way, the piece is about how this subject is kind of impossible to really talk about. There's, there's, there's um, kind of a wall of experience that blocks those who've, who have been to war and those who have not been to war to really communicate about it. Mm. Because if you haven't been in combat from what, you know, from speaking to all these, these vets, you can't really understand it, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I, for me, you know, about two years ago, I had a house fire. And it was, relatively speaking, not a bad house fire, um, thankfully. But the experience that I had in the months following that, when I heard high pitches, the frequency of a smoke detector, Mm. how I felt physically, you know, I mean, I had some sort of post-traumatic experience, to a very mild experience, you know, compared to 
you know, the moment where my uncle was surrounded by Viet Cong and thought he was going to die and his helicopter had flown away and that mm. was, you know. So you, you have these, you know, for me, that the experience of the fire made me realize the enormity of what these individuals had experienced. And, um, and I think it's, it's and, and, you know, and that's just trying, that's me from my own experience imagining the enormity of it, you know. Mm. Because I haven't experienced it. Yeah. So yeah, and um, yeah, it's funny. I, I, the the program note that I wrote for the this uh, for the program talks about how I find it very difficult actually to hear this piece now, mm. because um, you know, and these are all my family members. Right. You know, my grandfather is now ninety six. Um, well, and you and, told me last night um, we had a reception mm-hmm. after the recital that we saw um, th- that. The people that we hear on the recordings have never seen the piece. Right. Yeah, they were all invited, and I don't know if they've heard. The, I sent them all the recording when it came out, um, just because I said, you know, you're on this, you should have it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they've listened to it. I think many of them haven't. I know, but I know when I invited them to the performances, they said, no, I'm, I'm okay. Mm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, Steve, now I know you've you've conducted lots of new music, what we would call new music or newer music, but every piece has its challenges. What Mm -hmm. are the challenges uh, in conducting soldier songs? There are undoubtedly many challenges of which I'm not aware yet. So (laughs) let me talk about the ones that I know about. (laughs) You know, I think one of the most interesting things is the, the correlation of such an enormous topic with such small forces. So this kind of tension between intimacy and expansiveness, if you, if you will. Um, opera, for example, just as, as a form, we could talk about that. It brings with it, it carries such a lot with it, just the name itself. Mm. And we are used to seeing these large stories on stage, of, on, on, on operatic stages. And this certainly is a large story, but it's told... It, almost in a whisper most of the time. So this balancing of forces. And in a ve- and very kind of purely instrumental, if we can just talk about the ensemble for a little bit, there, there is a sound world which I find just fascinating. And uh, David puts together with a very small ensemble. Well, what is the ensemble? The if ensemble I can interrupt you just for a brief... Pairs of winds, for... pairs of strings, two percussionists, uh, piano, electronics, and then treatments to those instruments. Mm-hmm. So that there is, for example, on, on piano strings... Ebos, which are little devices that vibrate strings, and mm. so you can have a piano sound that doesn't decay when you strike the, the, the hammers, but rather sustains as though it's a voice. Uh, percussion with its panoply of different kinds of sounds is fully represented, uh, and strings with distortion pedals, for example, mm. and, and the sounds of the instrumentalists' voices mm-hmm. conjoining with the voice of the soloist. And, so, and everything is amplified. And everything is amplified. Including will, the voice. It mm. will be mixed. And then I, I'll come back to this idea of this, uh, that we can't see this piece from a distance. You know, we're so used to seeing orchestral music this is a smaller ensemble, but it's that, that ensemble that sits way over there, mm-hmm. right? Mm. And, and auditoriums were, in fact, built to kind of reinforce the fact that the audience comes through one door and the, the artists come through another door. And in this case, by hearing this music close up, either through pickups, which amplify a string from the distance of fractions of an inch, or very closely amplified drums, the sense is, quite clearly, that the audience members will be inside the sound, mm. therefore inside the story. 
So how do you, I mean, I, I suppose this is every performance, right? How do you render a performance which is intense and captivating, not overpowering, not off-putting, and not under, underpowered? And so finding the sweet spot where you, where you capture both the intimacy and the grandness of things, I think, is the fundamental challenge. Mm. Um, the opera is in three sections, mm-hmm. child, warrior, and elder. Yes. And what brought you to that structure? Well, I think it was partially the different parts of the stories that I was told. Ah. Um, I think in many ways the child section is really reflecting on my own childhood mm. and partially you know, comparing it with, like I said, my friend Justin and we had very similar childhoods. Uh, but I grew up playing, you know, playing war in the, in the forest around my house and you know, had G.I. Joe and had all, you know, played video games. So all the things that, are, that I'm exploring are part of this question of you know, how Justin and I went such different directions having had that, that sort of core... Um, star, and also the question of you know how do we uh, and how do cultures make their warriors? Mm-hmm. You know, which is a much bigger question, obviously. Um, and then the the warrior section is really dealing with the actual moment of making the warrior and the 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 sort of distinct experiences of boot camp and excitement for being in combat, and then the reality of actually experiencing what it. happens there. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, and how different they can be. The use of music in combat, um, still life with tank and iPod, is all about sort of mm. listening to, to death metal to sort of get get pumped up or to come down after something. And then the third part, Elder, is really thinking of you know my grandfather and my uncles and their experiences now of having dealt with it in very different ways. You know, mm-hmm. I think for uh, one of my uncles, I mean, he really just sort of became very good at suppressing it. He never really dealt with it. Yeah. Um, and in fact, once he did these interviews, both of my uncles actually started having nightmares again that they hadn't had for many years. Oh, for gosh sake. And then actually, uh, at least in one of their cases, started talking to someone about it. So it was oh. it's sort of an interesting, yeah. um, interesting results, I think, f- for him. But um, yeah, and then the, this, this question, you know, the ending is, is a cyclical thing. Mm. You know, the last sound we hear in the piece is also the first sound we hear in the piece. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that I think I find so difficult about the piece now is that it's just, as you said, you know, we have we have college students now who have never known a country not at war, and how long does that continue? Yeah, um, I'd I'd like the audience to hear a little bit uh, from the child section mm. because I think what happens with the voice that it's it's for one singer baritone, um, and David Adam Moore. Mm-hmm will be our, our singer. Now, did he premiere it? It was originally premiered by Timothy Jones with the Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble, in a, it, uh, and they commissioned the piece. Uh, David did the first performance with Beth Morrison Projects, which ah. was a couple years later, and that was in the Yuval Sharon production. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now he's designed, co-designed with uh, his partner Vita from Glimmer, this production. And that's so, a production we're, yeah. we're using, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I just, I, you don't use what we would typically call extended vocal techniques, mm-hmm. e- except here, mm-hmm. where he sings in falsetto yeah. to uh, be the child, right. and then goes immediately into his regular baritonal uh, register. I want to be a real American hero. I want to be just like my toy soldiers, killing all the bad guys with the funny names. 
I'm going to grow up and be a toy soldier, big bad machine guns making big bad, big, bad noise. Let's uh, listen to this excerpt. Remarkable and speaks a lot about David's uh, David Adam Moore's mm-hmm. abilities yeah. as a singer. Yeah, yeah. That if you didn't know it was the same voice, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that the um, the effect is certainly that that there are two different singers there, mm-hmm. uh, and and it works wonderfully. Now, did you have to work with uh, David or the original singer in order to get that right? Um, you know, I think every singer has different. Uh, approaches to things. So I think some singers who have done it um, find it more comfortable than others. But it's not, you know, I think it's the nice thing about writing for a low voice is the mm-hmm. falsetto is really, it's really available. It's pretty you know? natural. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, yeah, and then, you know, it's interesting because then the falsetto comes back one more time in the piece at the end. So right. it's, there's a sort of a strategic and dramatic <laughs> framing happening with mm-hmm. that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting talking to David because when I wrote this, I didn't really know what I was doing. It was the largest thing I had ever written. I wrote it, I used uh, the structure of songs so that I could easily rearrange things if I messed up the dramatic pacing, you know. Because it really is rather a, a song cycle. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so talking to uh, David when we were first working on it, I said, well, you know, how is it? Is this really tiring? Like, I don't know. At that point, I had no idea, really. And he said, yeah, this is basically like singing a full recital. Also, I'm running around and doing push-ups, and, you know, so, yeah, yeah it's pretty tiring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. And we're asking him to do three performances in three days. Yes, which right. Is right. A, little cha- a, yeah. a little challenging. Yeah. Um, now, it's always awkward to ask the composer to describe his style, so I'm going to ask you in front of the composer <laughs> about his style. How would you... Um, Define uh, this this music, this this piece. What 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 strikes you about it in terms of style? Well, David has already beaten me to the punch for how to des- describe this because I would call this song. Mm-hmm. In other words, one could you know I think we can talk um, without fear of too much contradiction in saying that you know a composer who comes out of playing rock music and pop music mm-hmm. comes out of a drum set tradition mm-hmm. who knows these sounds and these instruments and feels comfortable with them. Um, makes those sounds available in his music. But I think it would be a mistake, I think it would underestimate David as a composer in this piece as art, if we simply said, this is borrowing from some kind of vernacular and you can see that it, that ties it to its time, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it doesn't to me that sound is, like that at all. No, I mean, I don't think that this is very different from other great song cycles. It's a staged song cycle. I don't know if it was in the Pittsburgh, in the original <laughs> yeah, performance, yeah, it's, it's always, always, staged, it's always, always been staged. staged. Yeah. But it, it, you know, it, 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 it has 
a lot in con, con, you know, contact with, with, with Schubert, for example, with songwriters, with Gershwin, with songwriters throughout the, throughout the ages. And so to me, the intimacy, the immediacy of song is what strikes me in terms mm-hmm. of its style. Um, what struck me is that the vocal lines are, are not um, jagged or mm-hmm. terribly angular. The vocal lines are, at least to my ear, very singable. Mm-hmm. It's what happens around them yeah. that often uh, is so striking, indeed even shocking at times, uh, and, and puts us in that place where the child, the warrior, and the elder are. Well, there's a fair amount of deception in the piece. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a, or there's orchestrational deception mm-hmm. for surrounding the voice with, with uh, registers, encompassing the voice, so sandwiching it in the middle of a register so that it seeks to peek out. Mm-hmm. There's deception. There's, there's the fog of war, actually, as reflected in, in, mm-hmm. in music. I mean, I, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything, but um, I was rereading Sun Tzu, The Art of War, after, as I was learning, this, learning the piece. And all of a sudden I realized, just sitting here, that maybe that wasn't completely an accident that mm. I was doing. So. But in, in the central tenet of that is that war is really about deception. He tells this amazing story about having his troops on one night light 100,000 fires. So the enemy thinks, they're, oh, there are a lot of them. And then the next night they're to light only 50,000 fires. And the third night only 20,000 fires. They're the same number of people there, but the enemy thinks that there are these mass desertions, makes the mistake of underestimating them, and, and loses. Mm. So when you look at this, there is, in a different kind of way, I mean, deception sounds like a kind of pejorative. I don't mean it that way, but a, a kind of instrumental or textural sleight of hand which reframes the voice constantly to help us understand the poetic emphasis of the moment. You quote a very early 20th century anti-war song. Yeah. Tell us about that and how you stumbled upon it and, and decided to use it. I don't know if I remember how I stumbled upon it, honestly, at this point. It's called I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier. For my and I had never being, heard of the yeah. piece. But it's you encounter it. Not, once you know it, now you'll, you'll hear it periodically uh, worked into things. And I, I've heard it in film scores and sort of interesting, hmm. unexpected places. But yeah, you know, I, I, uh, that, that movement, it's in Two Marines. And that was... Um, uh, that tells the story of Carlos Arredondo, who lost his son, both, both of his sons actually, in Iraq, one of, in Iraq and I think one of, in Afghanistan. And when um, the notification team arrived, he got inside their van, doused himself with gasoline, and lit, the, lit, the, lit the, himself and the van on fire. Oh, God. Um, and was, you know, survived. The Marines who were there pulled him out and um, but he became a big uh, anti-war activist right after that, uh, once he recovered. And so th- that was part of the, the trying to honor his story through this tradition of uh, anti-war activism um, through the context of parents and children. Mm. So that's, that was the sort of reason for it, where it, when, it when it happened. That, that, to me, is the heart of the piece, mm. if, if you don't mind my just sort of deciding sure. <laughs> where it is for you. But for me, it, it, it certainly is. And I want the audience to hear what I consider really the climax of the piece, both textually and uh, musically. 
Again, this is the elder section of, uh, of the opera. And two Marines come to the door, and, and of course they've got the letter from the president that, with the typical language uh, uh, that's in that awful letter. And one of the things that he says is, your practiced words from scripts well-learned cannot bring back my son, which is a, just a stunning language, but I think also stunning music. Here's that section. I thank you for playing this because, in a way, this is an example of the kind of deception. If you'll mm-hmm. pardon that, that if you didn't understand English at all, you would imagine a very different kind of text to that. Mm-hmm. The tension that's embedded in the gorgeous consonances, the orchestration, and the surging symbol, and mm-hmm. all of those things, when cradling those searing words, is 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 the poetry. Yeah. And, and I don't have perfect pitch, but it sounds like C major. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Ah. I think. Do you remember? I, I, I think I'm pretty is. sure it's C major. Yeah. <laughs> because and, I mean, it, it just has that feel, yeah. that yeah. open um, and, and open comfortable, yeah, right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, place where where we like to be, and yeah. that's where we bring the audience in this yeah. piece. Um, and it's it's quite a kind of a miraculous moment. It's really lovely. Um, what are your observations based now on your uh, involvement with opera? Mm. Uh, on where opera is going, uh, where you would like to see opera go in the United That's States? Interesting. Well, I think this series is a really great indication of a major change that's happening in opera in America. Uh, the, the, the embracing of smaller scale works mm. and the founding of series uh, that coexist with the main stage grand opera offerings. Um, there is, you know, I, I sort of say it half-jokingly, but it's not actually an, ex- an, an exaggeration that every composer I know is writing an opera or wants to, you know? <laughs> so we are really in this sort of new golden age of opera in America. It's really amazing. Um, and it's taking all kinds of shapes and sizes and forms from... Um, the most traditional and uh, you know to the most experimental, and it's all sort of coexisting in a really beautiful way. Um, so I'm personally very interested in pushing the form in, in in a way that embraces aspects of it. So maybe JFK is a great example where it's a grand opera and it was commissioned to be a grand opera. So it's got chorus, it's got orchestra, has nine principles. Um, 
it's also in some ways rather surreal narratively. It's mm. nonlinear. It deals with time in interesting ways. It has things that coexist in multiple times at once. So looking at some of the, the storytelling devices that come out of cinema and putting them on the stage, um, but yet with big choral numbers, you know? Mm-hmm. And so trying to find ways that move the form forward in a way that still honors the form's roots. Right. right. Um, that was a big commission mm-hmm. for a big grand yeah. opera. Um, in a nutshell, <laughs> what did you learn about opera that was different than what you learned in your yeah. three previous pieces? That's a good question. I mean, you know, it's such a different thing writing for that for forces like that. Yeah. Just because of how sound works and how you have to treat how you have to allow space. You know, you can't necessarily um, have the most intricate and quick-turning um, musical material and expect that it's going to necessarily read mm-hmm. in the same way as, you know, like with a piece like Soldier Songs where it's amplified, you know, this is all acoustic. So you're dealing with the resonance in the hall, and that's what you have to write. So you have to write all the stuff on the page that is going to create the illusion of what you want the piece to be, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, <laughs> I think. Um, well, I was going to ask and you whether when you got the commission, you felt like a kid in a candy store or if you were scared to death. Oh, both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, well, and because, and it, also, I mean, let's not forget that it was about John F. Kennedy's last night. Yeah. So, you know, no big deal there. No frightening, <laughs> heavy, enormous topic that everyone has an, uh, a, a personal feeling about. Which, know? of course, happened in the city in where Fort Worth, yeah, it was right. Which premiered. was really exciting to be able to write a story and have it premiered in the city where it actually happened. Yeah. That was something, that's something I really like and, and have interest in doing again somehow, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a really rewarding experience in the end, as difficult as it was. Mm-hmm. I would definitely want to do it again, you know. You do? Yeah, oh, definitely. Oh, great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. and there, <laughs> there are plans and there, yeah, there's, there's uh, I love the, that scale. Mm-hmm. I love working on that scale. I really enjoyed the challenge of Supporting singers without overpowering them with the orchestra, right. learning how to orchestrate in a way that that was. It's funny you, you sort of talked about deception before. I mean, it's really all sleight of hand. I think oh, yeah. it's a, how do you make the, or, the orchestra sound huge when it's only the violas playing? Mm. I just sat in the, the one of the, the Zitzprobe for um, Tristan and Isolde before I flew out mm-hmm. at the Met, and it's amazing how little is often happening in the orchestra in that piece, and yet it's it feels consistently. Enormous, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, and then of course, when it's actually enormous, it's overwhelming. So you you have this, you create this illusion, and then the scale is is sort of married to that illusion. It's mm. it's it's magic. It's yeah, really like yeah. that's why we love it. Yeah, yeah it's great. Absolutely. Um, let's get local. Uh, you've been at UCSD for twenty five years, and again promoting new music, conducting new music. Um, San Diego Opera does indeed have a proud history of, of, of doing some U.S. premieres, uh, one world premiere, I believe. We, and in fact, within the first couple of years of our existence, we premiered uh, The Young Lord by Heinz Werner Hense, which is really saying something it really at is. that time. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, which it's would still have been saying something. 1968, I think, or 69. Um, uh, and, and other living composers, Carlisle Floyd, of course, and Jake Heggie. Um, 
What's possible, though, for us? And I, and I, I ask you specifically because you know you've got your finger on the pulse of the San Diego new music community. Dream for us a little bit in terms of this detour series. What, what kinds of things would you like to see? Well, that's a fantastic and, and, and a sort of imposing question, I think. <laughs> yeah. But I, I can say, I mean, in addition to living here and loving this place, and it's, it's my home, I also play, uh, well, last year, 100 concerts away from San Diego. So I'm, I've, I see plenty of the world. And I think the first message to send to, well, to everybody who's here and, and, and at this moment is we live in an extraordinary place. And it's not only extraordinary because the beach is so great. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a place which is poised for a kind of growth moment that really is going to set things on fire. And this is from someone who is the artistic director also of an ensemble in San Francisco who routinely works in New York and has a residency in Paris and in Banff. So I'm, I'm around the... And I think San Diego's astonishing. And I think that it would be... When we all figure that out and hold hands and say that to each other, <laughs> we'll really, really do something. I think that's, that's the first thing to say. We're, we're living in a place that is, is, has extraordinary resources and is really going to do something fantastic. And I think, to, to, to talk a little bit about what, what David was just talking about with respect to grand opera... Grand has always been a little bit of a misnomer for me. I mean, I love those pieces. I really do. But to me, grand is only as good as, as, as intimate is. Mm-hmm. So when you talk to someone who is moved by Bohème or moved by the magic flute or something like that, you're talking about an, in, an intimate experience happening to a certain person in a certain place. I just spent two months in, in Lucca in Italy, the birthplace of Puccini. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to people that I knew and... And, and we'd have these conversations, you know, mostly with one's hands. Yeah. And, and what Puccini meant to those people was not the grandest of Turandot, but mm-hmm. this little moment of remembering, yeah. listening to it with a family member or these misty eyes that you would get. So the great thing about opera is, is its grandness, but its goodness. Now, that just has to find a place. Maybe that's the definition of opera, a storytelling in musical form that takes place someplace specific. Mm. That place doesn't always have to be a theater. Mm. It can be, um, well, train tracks, as you well know. It can be in an unconventional venues. And in fact, I think when, and knowing you were going to ask me this question, I was thinking of, of pieces that I've either conducted or know. And, and the piece that comes to mind that I think epitomizes this is this great piece of Victor Ullmann, the Kaiser von Atlantis, oh, yeah. oh. that was made in Theresienstadt. And the Kaiser, it's... It's, it's amazing it, piece. When it was, a, it was a thinly veiled satire of Hitler, and when the SS guards realized that, they confiscated the score in parts, and they sent Ullmann to his death, and the score remained lost until the 1990s. Mm. And now it's been discovered. So this was an opera which was never intended for the concert stage. It was intended to illuminate a moment in time with certain particular people. Conducting that piece is an extraordinarily moving experience. Mm. Hearing it is a moving Mm. experience. And there are many other pieces like that we... I know have our lists of favorite small operas. We're, we're doing one, after all, yeah. that's on my list of my favorites. Finding 
highlighting, enhancing the moment of contact between a listener and a musical moment. Whether that thing happens in the middle of Turando or in the middle of soldier songs or in the middle of Der Casa von Atlantis, that's what it's all about. And that can happen in San Diego as well as it can happen on the Sydney Opera House stage or at the Met. Well, and and as you say, on trolley tracks. On trolley tracks, indeed. (laughs) Which actually has happened. Um, uh, You know, we're, we're exploring... I think as a, as a company, um, new ways to make opera uh, and new ways, hopefully, to commission opera and to entice composers to come to us with, with, with something new. Uh, and that is an exciting thing to be involved in. It's extraordinary. Um, how about you? What, do you? what would you like to see, perhaps, on, on a series like this? Hmm... A commission, it's, perhaps. It, well, <laughs> it's no. It's hard to say because there are so many great pieces. I think you know it's important to find pieces that um, the company believes in, you know, or or to take a chance on an artist that they have faith in. I think that's a, that's an important thing. The act of commissioning a work is a really remarkable thing, and it's something that you know the, the, it's not always going to be the composer's best piece. But the process of making that piece together is what's actually really valuable. Mm-hmm. And, and it often can be the, that composer's greatest piece. And then you were part of that, which is sort of a, a bonus. But what you're saying about community, I think, is really right. You know, it's, there's a, this feeling of building together that's really beautiful and, and, and valuable and rewarding. Um, and yeah, there's, you know, and I think also knowing the community, you know, knowing what the community is going to respond to knowing right. what um, you know what um, what it needs mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. is uh, is an important thing to consider so I think it's really different for every company to me commissioning a new piece of music is the single most optimistic thing mm. a culture can do because it presupposes an audience not yet born whom you care about in whom you wish to bequeath something to and so in the, commissioning a piece of music forces us to imagine the future, not just the past. Mm. So I think that's an extremely important yeah. thing. Yeah. I've been meaning to remind you both that, that you're talking to somebody who, for, um, who was raised uh, thinking that Shostakovich, Bartok, and Stravinsky were new music. Mm. But see, then they were. Right? <laughs> so was Beethoven in his day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Read the reviews of the Eroica. Yeah. He got panned. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and now... The, the heroes of, of, my, of my teenage years, Steve Reich and uh, Terry Riley and, and Philip Glass, are approaching or are in their 80s. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which I, I, it just kind of blows me away. Um, but there's a new generation of composers that, that we really, really need to hear from. And uh, I think locally, uh, to hear from you about who they are uh, and encourage companies like us to to present them. In other words, not just at UCSD, of course not, but no. out you know uh, out in the community. Um, and 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 for you, one of those new composers of of that generation. Kudos to you, and much much uh, luck and success you. in your future. Because I I I really do think Soldier Songs is a great piece Amen. and uh, extraordinarily touching and speaks to something that is uh, obviously right now uh, extraordinarily important. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being here tonight. Um, thank you. And uh, thank you to the audience. And we'll see you at the opera. Thanks. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.